How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourselves as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spirit Talk. And today we're bringing on our good friend again, uh, this time by himself. Last time he was on here with Marcus Torgerson. It's been about a year now. Uh, but professional knife thrower, combat knife thrower, blade concept and design consultant, educator, instructor, Jason Johnson, uh, back on Spirit Talk. Uh, brother, it's great to have you on here again. Well, good to see you again. I heard Marcus got shorter since the last time we've seen him. <laughs> <laughs> It's my hair too. Lots of more hair too. The uh, so one of the things that's cool on Spirit Talk is that once you had a guest on or the people I see me interact with on social media, they're always like, "Oh, that's cool person, cool person." So the first time you're on here, uh, people are well aware of what you do when you throw knives and the work you do and your craftsmanship. And then people are just like, "You need to have Jason back on your show uh, for wow. a full episode uh, because there's so much to dig into just about." the nomenclature from a knife to how to get started in the knife throwing business and how to get started in the knife crafting business. And so uh, again, thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. I can't believe people actually are curious. <laughs> uh, well, it's, here's the thing though. It's like you, you do a thing that I think you know, one of the things I want you to talk about is this, the primal instinct to uh, for survival, to throw something like it's our, it's sure. our caveman to whatever. And I think what's really fascinating is that you are really good at something that the first people ever uh, had to get really good at to survive and fend for themselves. And so for you to kind of take that uh, leap into uh, today's world, um, it's it, there is something really cool to that. So if you want to just jump and start talking about the idea that what you do uh, is kind of is derived from the idea of a primal instinct, uh, that type of stuff. Well, I would say that, I mean, first of all, that primal instinct doesn't leave anybody. I mean, it's 2021. And I just saw a video the other day of a guy, two kids that must've been being attacked by some dudes in a bar or whatever. Now legality of stuff. I don't, we're not talking about legal things at all, but the kid threw the beer bottle, empty beer bottle, hit the guy smack and they kissed him. Did you see that video? Yes. I, yeah. I think you should post that too. I think that'd be uh, super important for that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I just was saying, like, the kid, do you think the kid at the beginning of the night was like, man, I'm getting real good at throwing beer bottles? No, that just is the thing that happened. And all I'm saying is that that fact of that, the evidence of that is um, that it's just a primal instinct. Why? Well, because the kid just did it. He pulled it out of nowhere and he just threw a beer bottle at somebody the same way a monkey throws a rock at a at a, at a looming jaguar. You know, it's, it's, it's already built in a human structure. I'd say you're already good at it. I've seen people that can't throw, and then when the oh shit moment comes about of something completely unrelated, they can throw just fine. You know what I mean? It's it's this has to get out of the way. Is that Stop something? Out of the, what's is that? Do you think that people have that suppressed for a reason, or they're never in those situations where they they don't think they can fend for themselves to create time and space by throwing a rock or a, an Allen wrench, or you've even demonstrated throwing screwdrivers and scissors and all this stuff. Like, yeah, sorry, dude, I'm smiling because I'm seeing all these things in my head as you're talking about. You're like, do you think these people have these things suppressed? Yes, <laughs> political correctness has single-handedly killed all kinds of honorable, noble 
and, and duty worthy things of action. Uh, when I was a kid, we grew up a whole lot differently, just like when you was a kid. I mean, schoolyard fights and, and tag with your buddies and, and rough, rough housing, you know, all the stuff that, yes, it's suppressed. Well, growing up, I mean, we would play, uh, we, it, we'd play tag, but if you got hit by a stick or a rock, that means it's no different to be touching you. So it's like we play tag yeah. rocks. It's like yeah. you would get cuts and scrapes and probably concussions. And, and the other thing, too, it's in the schoolyard, like I've ever been pushed off swing sets and come at home, my parents would be like, well, what'd you do about it? It wasn't a right. uh, sure. I had a go- bicycle stolen. My dad's like, what are you doing home? You know? <laughs> right. And here's the thing too. This isn't to take away from the parents that, hey, we're not going to let this escalate to the point where people get seriously hurt. But I have to. You have to learn how to kind of deal with the real world when it bites back. It was a different time back then. Our yes, parents were worried 100%. about us being stabbed with knives and shot with guns and run over with cars and human traffic and every other thing. Right. You know what I mean. So yeah, so, I get that. I got two boys, so, and I wouldn't let them do that. Some of that stuff. And, and I know you started your interest in love of all things knives at, what, around ten or eleven. And so, what is it? Were you handed something from your father or a nephew or uncle or or whatever? Someone in your life that gave you a pocket knife, where you're kind of like, man, I can have fun with this. You know, I wish I had a really cool story about something like that. But in actuality, it was go find something to do. And so, you know, when the area era we grew up in bicycles you know we'd ride our bikes everywhere well in the era we grew up in i could i could go buy stuff from a five and dime store and you know i always watch movies and uh rambos and the, the martial arts movies and all that cool stuff in the day and ended up found myself at a there wasn't a lot in our small town but there was an antique store and i went to the antique store and there was an old k bar uh you know m16 k bar and um that was the first knife I started throwing and I bought the knife surprisingly and I'll just be really candid here but I bought the knife to defend myself um <clears throat> rough family you know what I mean and uh yeah. bought the knife to defend myself and ended up you know like keeping it secret and keeping it hidden and I always take it out to the woods with me and I, I wanted to learn how to do everything with this knife and that's what caused it man I was starting to throw knives with something I it just came to me as in like well you watch all the martial arts movie crap and at the time, I will say this, like I was already good with slingshots and a sling, like a David and Goliath sling, put one rock right. in your mailbox. And, you know, I was already doing things like that. So projecting something, bow and arrow, all that stuff was already there. So I think that's kind of where that put that together uh, with my knife and being able to say, okay, I can project my stab forward. And, uh, and that's where it took hold and, you know, growing up in the wilderness and stuff and going out and and bushcrafting and stuff all that we we i i called it living off the land bushcrafting was a term that came way later as far as i knew you know right. i never heard that before i was like what's bushcrafting i'm going out in the woods and fishing and hunting and and living here i'm i'm hanging out this is my camp you know this is just where i am and um but yeah i think that's what started it and uh i realized that it was a hobby when my dad got upset about the tree in the front yard about to fall over because you know we had taken this massive tree and it was a dead tree, but I'd thrown those, so many knives at it that it was starting to get <laughs> caved out, and it would uh, it was gonna fight. It eventually fell over. But, um. You, uh, for me, growing up, I, I love Rambo. I love all the stuff with the, the knife. Um, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger when he says "stick around to Predator" or when he throws the saw blades in Commando. But even go further yeah. than that, some of the, the most 
enthralled in most time in history I ever went back and studied and researched and stuff for growing up. Uh, Jim Bowie, the Bowie knife, Davy Crockett, these guys that had, every time you saw them, they had that leather th pouch with a knife at their side. It, uh, for me, I've always been enamored with the idea. Yeah, that's of how I grew up, man. That, that was how I grew up. You go to the, the farmer's market or the, the, the grocery store there in town or whatever. I mean, I grew up in, in Weston, Nebraska. So, I mean, there's people with Bowie knives on their hips. I grew up seeing that. I had a Bowie knife on my hip as soon as I could, you know. It, it is fascinating, too, like as you go through the history of civilizations, whether it's armies and all this stuff, but from bayonets uh, to all this, this idea of you have a gun, but you can make this gun that much better if you have a, a blade on it. And it's for me, it's, it's just like there is something to it where it's like there. I don't know if it's because the knife is sexy, but it, it, there's so it's so primal uh, and you need it. I use it every day of my life from cutting meat to whittling a piece of wood to cutting the some dead skin on my fingernails to yeah everything from box opening right. to, yeah to, to cutting fingernails yeah i mean yeah all of that a nail nail cutter to, to little utility tool i mean you can do a lot of cool stuff with the gun but you can't cut things with it and, and it's originally those bayonet ideas came around because well look when the bayonet started you didn't have uh semi-automatic fast reloading rifles well, it was a way for me to put my poker on the end of a stick. Once I ran out of ammo, I could poke you from a farther distance. Well, that's kind of what throwing a blade has jumped around in cultures. You know what I mean? It's jumped around in different times according to the technology of the culture, according to what must be done, according to all these weird spots in history that it shows up, people throwing lethal, capable weapons. You talk Here, about the... Everything the transition from you can't changing your bags all stuff to bayonet to but one of the things you're obviously you teach about you you travel all over the country for is close quarters disassembly uh so one of the questions from our followers dave was wondering what exactly is close quarters disassembly because it seems intimidating uh that someone that doesn't know enough about knives would be like i don't know what to do that i don't know what to do that but can sure. you kind of explain it where people are like oh now i get it and why it's essential yeah, so I put it in the most logical, basic terms I could think of to actually narrate what we're doing. Because there's no stupid 50-step knife fighting program, all that McDojo life crap, two Ronin tactic garbage. There's none of that. That's, that's ridiculous. That, that doesn't work. Here, I'll explain. Here's your knife. What cuts? The edge. Take the edge and cut the bad guy. Cut the enemy, right? This is a zipper. You open up your enemy, you dig it in him, you gouge it out of him, whatever opportunity uh, presents itself for you in close quarters, take it. The, 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 the point of it is, is I'm using that to disassemble, meaning I'm taking apart. Uh, close quarters disassembly means quickly, effectively to the point, disassembling what I need to do to stop you from working, right? right. So just stabbing you 20 times in the stomach is not going to do it, right? You can still do this. You can still do this. All the things. All right, shoot a gun, whatever, swing a blade, it doesn't matter. So the disassembling part is something that I put there because it's logistically what you're doing. If I cut, you know, the wrist, you just saw a knife fight go down on a video that made it to the interwebs recently where two dudes were fighting. One dude had a straight blade and one dude thought he was cool with the karambit. Homeboy got his wrist cut. Well, I don't know that he intendedly did that. I don't think he intendedly did that. I think he was just swinging at whatever was coming towards him. I don't think the guy was a well-trained practitioner. I think he was just a man. I think he was trying to cut whatever was coming towards him. 
he nicked the guy's arm. Well, it, what's the difference with, with disassembly or with making somebody work if I cut you there, cut you there, cut you there? It, as soon as the guy realizes that his hand don't work, it doesn't matter, right? right? We're soft, fleshy targets. You're just opening it up. You're, you're putting the guts on the ground. You're cutting across the neck. You're cutting across the bicep. Whatever sticks its way out there, whatever presents its opportunity, whatever you need to do to survive, but knowing the anatomy of a person, knowing what stops them from moving, and knowing where and what to cut, when you know all these things that are just logical observations. They're just things that you'll come to know and put in your memory and throw away. When the archer jumps on his horseback and draws the arrow and shoots the arrow, he doesn't think about drawing the arrow out and looking at it to make sure it's knocked on the. No, he just does it, like riding right. a bike. It's the same thing with this disassembly. You just open and you know cut up, cut apart. Basically, you're cutting apart the enemy as they bring themselves to you. Learning how and where and what to hit where to cut how to how to be aggressive enough with your blade and what's going to actually stop somebody you know it's just basically just training awareness and you also obviously are aware of people's uh uh arteries and uh femoral artery or certain areas where you know a knife puncture or strike or slash could help you in your situation you're in and so is there a when you go out and teach this stuff are you, do you have to let people know, Hey, maybe when you attack attacking limbs or large muscle groups, maybe for this area, because you're going to puncture this thing better. Like, how do you kind of tell so people? The first thing is, is um, the first thing we have to do is discern between a puncture and a slash. They are two very, they might as well be two different okay. weapons because a puncture is a puncture, a, a single hole, a slash. Well, I can cut your arm off with the saber tooth. You know what I mean? Well, that's not a very formidable blade, but I bet I can get you both both your wrist bones with it, you know. And the thing is, is like there's a big difference between a cut, an actual cut, versus a puncture. And the in logistically, scientifically world, the organs will somewhat somewhat move around punctures. Um, even seen shrapnel on battlefields where I talked to field medics that the shrapnels hit the body, destroyed the epidermis, but the organs can slither and slide out of the way. And because they're tough, they're, that's why right. they don't get hurt when you fall off your bike. There's, um, you know, all these things that happen that are, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to connect to my truck. Can you still hear me audio fine? Yeah, you're good. You're good. Okay, I still hear you. So it gives me like 15 minutes and it wants to disconnect. But basically what I'm saying is if I stab you in the core with a knife, if the knife is really sharp and it's really pointy, that's an advantage as opposed to like a gas station knife at a microscience level that makes a huge difference. If the knife is sharp on the edge, it makes a big difference for stabbing because it means that the organ doesn't have so much lack of friction. It has more friction or less friction that it can slide out of the way. If the point is really pointy, like really, really pointy, then it's gonna penetrate easier. Um, but a stab can yield a lot of um, uh, forgiving wounds. You might start bleeding, you can still be moving at the same time where you stab. So the targeting of stabbing is a lot more refined than it will be for cutting. Meaning if I'm stabbing the face, like even in the 16th century, stabbing the face was a technique reserved for when your blade wouldn't cut. You stab the face to stop them, you know, disrupting senses, right. stabbing their eyes, you know, that kind of thing. The object was to stab an eye, push their head back and put it into their brain cavity. But, um, cause there's just a thin, you know, bone structure there so but that was the idea of stabbing versus cutting you have to be more targeted with your stab a stab to the chest a stab to the lungs 
even a stab to the lungs. Well, you got another lung. Yeah, the one lung's filling up, but you still yield more time. And time is commensurate to location of stab. So when the hole is put in something really vital, um, spine, heart, uh, brain, you know, anything like that, that's going to be, a, a gut stab's not going to do it. A gut stab, if a person is committed, they're fighting, they're still going, they're not yielding, can still fight. You know what I mean? So, but a slash can be less, um, depending on your knife, obviously, can be less, uh, you can target other areas. I can, if I, if I cut, if somebody's reaching an arm in and I hit here and it cuts down and fillets their whole arm open, well, I've had enough arteries, veins, and, and blood yes. pathways that stuff is shooting out. Their mind goes from fighting me to, oh, you know, real quick. And so the slash can, can do things that a stab can't do. So those two things have to be discerned. I can take a, a blade across the, your stomach and guts will fall mm. out, depending on the blade, right? If it's a knife like this, you know this knife. You ever seen this knife before in your life? Yeah. You have, haven't you? yeah <laughs> you know where that came from don't you yeah okay so that's very this is very kirchnized for guys that don't know watching this is a an elephant gift that he gave me i gave him a knife a while back and this has been with him before shinedown was ever a thing and traveled all over the country as it goes and it's a bobcat jawbone a bit of silver and what looks to be a leaf spring from a car transformed into a knife it still has a little bit of curve to it so that kind of but um so this blade, now this blade, even if it's really sharp, I can flash, but how deep is that going to go? Right? right. So it'll cut it to its maximum depth. Well, that's only about two inches. So, you know, in hindsight, it's like, well, the blade that you use is going to determine your capabilities with the knife. Does that mean you can kill somebody with it? Well, absolutely. I can kill somebody with a toothpick to give me enough time. So that's why, pick, depending on what you carry, you know, like I carry a saber tooth or a baby tooth. But look at this. This is a cold steel Espada XL, seven inch blade. Take your arm off with it. It goes in my pocket, comes out light and lightning. It's the only knife that I will carry that's a folding knife because it opens so fast. It opens under duress. It opens with a quick motion, like an auto without a button. An right. auto with the button, you're fumbling for it. Uh, if your hands are muddy, bloody, sweaty, or whatever, fumbling with a, a push button is not going to work. At the same time, most push button knives are little. This thing's huge, you know? I, I fight raccoons with this or whatever, you know, whatever it needs to be done can be done. I can butcher an animal with it. This blade right. shape is conquered nation, the Espada, uh, you know, clip point trail, you know, clip point single edge blade. Um, you know, like the, the experience on the battlefield historically, you should watch out for, well, why do people have double edged swords? When do they use them? Why do people have single edge blades? When do they use them? All those things give you keys as to what actually works. And then just trying it. Like, I mean, if you, I'm not saying go out and cut up your buddy, but you guys got plastic blades. I mean, go, go experiment, see what happens. Right. I mean, watch the evidence we've got living in a day and age where now you can see everything. You know? We used, we used to do uh, for the secret service, they'd give you like these fake knives and they put like ink or whatever on there. You'd have a white uh, shirt on and you the, the instructor, yeah. Right. So the instructor obviously knew what he was doing, but so when you start studying, you're like, oh, it's a knife, he's not gonna stab me. Then you after the drill, you're like, Oh, I got you. And he's like, dude, he's like, You look at all your arteries and stuff. He goes, I punctured you, I slashed you, I stabbed you, like you had no idea. And in a real fight, you're dead on the mat right now. And well, that's it, the thing. I would say this, look how easy you can cut yourself. Oh, that's that, that's the other thing too. Like one of the questions is like, how do you 
obviously it's repetition. Holding, pulling your knife out of your pocket, uh, cleaning it, whatever you do with it, pulling it out in the dark, in the day when you wake up, playing with it. But there has to get a, a level of comfort where you are comfortable enough to carry a seven-inch blade in your back pocket. Well, like I that, would say this. When you get up in the morning, you personally, when yep. you get up in the morning and you put on your shoes, how comfortable are you with those shoes and putting them on, tying them? I, they're my shoes. You know how hard it is if you try to do it with one hand? You've yeah. That's like, right. Like, oh, God. Man, this, are these my shoes? Right. Wipe your butt with the other hand feels weird doesn't it yeah you know what i'm saying so it just goes to show you that people no matter of all walks of life talent levels or skill can become comfortable with the things that they are doing right right One every single the... person out there puts their shoes on and they don't think twice about it they're comfortable with the motion but you have somebody that just got done having a heart attack got to learn to walk again or get had it was uh, paralyzed or what you know what i mean their body has to be learned so it's 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 as simple as that just learning is reputation getting comfortable with something you know what i mean in this scenario say i'm a man or a woman uh walking to my car late at night i got either got my car keys or a pocket knife or something small where i can stab someone with and i'm attacked i stab the person is my goal to keep stabbing and make sure that person doesn't keep attacking or do i stab that person whether it's in the, in the eye socket nose wherever it is to get them worried about themselves and then get away and call for help like where do you draw the line in terms of creating time and space or making sure this person doesn't get off the ground again? Great, great, great question. Um, I would say number one, first thing is always going to be circumstance, situation, intention, and ability. Right. What is the circumstance that you're in? What is the situation that you're in? What, what's going on? What is the intention of the ability or what is the intention of the person you're facing? And what is their ability to carry it out? What do they want to do? Do they want to kill you? <laughs> do you have somebody that you're responsible for protecting? Do you have a way out? Do you want to have a way out? Is this person going to keep coming back? Are they going to let you run away? Are, you know what I mean? Those things have to just be known. You can't go into a situation and ask them, hey, are you, are you going to follow me if I stab you and then just let you? You got to know. And that at the same time is like partly not my responsibility. If I fear for my life and you tell me you're going to kill me or you present deadly force, well, I'm going to try to get away from danger. I'm always right. going to try to get away from danger. But if you die in the process, well, that's on you. I'm not going to be held responsible for your death because you tried to take my life. So, you know, I kind of draw a hard line there, like, like in an old Western or something like, well, if you come after my life, you better kill me. And if you kill me, I forgive you. If you don't, I'll kill you. So uh, that's the rule of honor. If right. I live, I will kill you. If I die, you're forgiven. So that's, the way it should be. And I think that circumstance, situation, intention, and ability are applied. But are you asking me if somebody came up to me to grab my son and I turn around and blade comes out and I cut them once, am I going to stop at the second cut before they're out of arm's reach? Absolutely not. I'm going to cut them into a thousand pieces until they're done. If they fall right. down on the ground or they try to flee, don't chase them, let them fall. Other than that, you try right. to take my life, I'm going to defend it. And I think it's one of those things too, especially with the close quarter stuff and the stabbing and you see all the terrorist attacks on the subway trains or these guys with machetes and swords. Yeah, look off. at that guy yeah. on the subway train dressed up like the Joker. How many people did he stab? Uh, more like seven than, or eight people. Yeah, uh, yeah, at least. And yeah. I, I think the idea of the violence and the blood is what scares people with that because you don't... Blood is the biggest... It's a visual. Yes. Yeah, only in America. Yeah. <laughs> in other countries, it's not so much prevalent. 
Right. But even Ed talks about that at his class, Ed Calderon, Ed's manifesto, Ed, that, that terrorisms and people that do that kind of stuff for a living know that they can walk into a place, cut somebody open, put blood on the ground and everyone will run. Well, it's it, to kind of go into the next segment here where you, I've, if people go to social media, your website, everything to find out, like people are always like, how can you out draw a guy with a gun or whatever? If someone like you uh, who trade, maybe five other people want to jump into a, uh, a trade where you're not going to check for dives and stuff with seven to eight dives each, you're throwing those dives at such speed before a cop or security can pulls a gun on you that it's kind of mind blowing how you're able to, you can be just as deadly, if not more deadly with a blade than you, someone pulling a gun out. And I think people don't realize well, that. I'm also going to be just as dead. I mean, right. the real, yeah, I can beat somebody before they can most like you've seen the videos that I've done. Jerry Mitchell is a great man. He's a, a good buddy of mine. We're not, we're going to throw that. Ex, ex, yeah. I'm faster than Jerry on a good day, but can, is Jerry going to put holes in me? Yeah. You yep. know, so we're both dead. What it's, I'm getting at is like, okay, real world scenario. I can pull a, a knife off my pocket and put it in somebody faster than they can shoot me, but they can still shoot me. They're also have the advantage if they're farther than my throw. If they're farther than 30 feet, my reliable throw, I would say 30 feet. Now I could teach somebody to throw two rotations up to 50 feet, 60 feet. Great. Am I going to do that in combat? Well, the variables increase. The variables increase with distance and time. You know what I mean? My blade is going very fast, but 60 feet, there's a lot of variable. That's only two rotations of a blade. It only spins twice at 60 feet. Well, 30 feet is only one rotation. Uh, it goes on the golden ratio. So what I'm saying is, yeah, I can hit you with the blade. That's why the saber tooth weighs a pound. It's not about the puncture. It's about the impact. So the puncture is going to do what it does with time. The impact is going to do what it does immediately. You know what I mean? That felt impact that puts you on your ass. Like if I throw... Uh, I have, I'll give you a good example. A guy asked me one time, oh, you know, the knife's not going to hurt me. It's not going to knock me down. I'll just walk it off. I'll pull it out and come at you. And I was like, well, what if I took this 20-ounce claw hammer and threw it at you as hard as I could at point-blank range? Are you going to walk that off? Oh, dude, you'd be screwed. That'd probably break some rip. Like, my knife weighs more than that 20-ounce claw hammer, dude. You know? You, so, uh, you have a video on your, I think, Pro Knife Throw website where you, Rich McKenna, you go out there and demonstrate to these other leaders uh, in this in this field you're in, uh, not necessarily knife throwing, but self-defense and tactical. And it was really cool seeing someone like Rich and these guys be like, man, you could throw a pair of pliers like that? Uh, and you called them oh. like the titty pliers <laughs> or uh, the the a pencil or a knitting needle and stuff. It, it, it kind of, for me, it's like, I know you, I know what you can do, but it's like, other people are just like, man, it doesn't have to be a knife. And I think people just don't realize that your philosophy and how you look at stuff, yeah, you're a professional, one of the best knife throwers in the world, but you could also show someone in a nursing home to throw a knitting needle and stop an orderly. Well, I mean, most knitting needles are like light little aluminum things. Okay, so here's what I would say to you, an observation to make. Yeah, I can teach somebody to take a paring knife and stick it in you, and that paring knife will stick you all the way to the hilt. The pairing knife. But is it going to stop you? No, because the impact isn't there, right? right? The impact isn't there. So if I don't actually like throw it at you and stick you in the throat, well, has it got enough weight to penetrate? That's the thing. Yeah, bare skin for sure. Uh, maybe their t-shirt for sure. But if I'm wearing my vest and I got all my stuff, I doubt the validity of the fact that the pairing knife that weighs like two ounces is going to go that far. If it's sharp, it helps. Sharpness 
will increase penetration capability exponentially in, in every test that I've ever done. Sharpness is a huge thing, especially for organic medium. Um, I can throw a car, a knife, a saber tooth through a trunk of a car and all these things, you know, it's two layers of Spanish breastplate armor, but the, 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 the knife matters. Like if I say, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to have you walk into the classroom and I'm a teacher, I walk into the classroom and I need something to throw at a pursuant subject student who maybe has deadly force capability. I walk into the classroom. What am I going to grab? To throw what can i bridge the gap with that's going to hurt this kid as he comes through the door and tries to kill me what what look around what are you going to grab is it going to be an apple is it going to be a stack of papers no you're going to try to find something with weight instinctively right. why because it's going to transfer the weight when you throw it so a chair a stapler on the desk a metal stapler i'm going to probably grab the paper shredder the paper cutter thing bam and just throw the whole thing you know we're not playing around so but that's the thing. Instinctively, when you're put to the test, instinctively, when you want to do it, in instinctively, when a caveman's got a, a pack of angry hyenas after him, he doesn't grab a tiny rock. He grabs a big rock and he's a big, formidable sized rock and throws it. Well, that's to be observed. So that's in that's, terms um, of your duty carry, everyday carry. Uh, Lori was wondering, is it what knife of yours uh, that you can carry on you at all times. And this is for people in general, not necessarily you, baby. Uh, they would have the most impact, the most practical, but also the most uh, concealability. Okay, so this is a great question. And I get this question all the time about what knife to carry. Okay, if you have a folding knife, that's great. It's a tool unless you can get it out under duress. Can you get it out when someone's hands are on you and they're punching you when you're falling backwards? If you can't get it out and use it while you are being hurt, it's not a weapon, it's a tool. So if you have a fixed blade knife, cool. It don't have to be big. The baby tooth only has a like four and a quarter inch blade. I don't think I have one on me right now, but it's basically a saber tooth, but smaller. This saber tooth, basically the same size as the K-bar, 12 and a half inch overall, seven and a quarter inch, seven and a half inch blade. The baby tooth is a four inch blade, five inch handle. So it's not very big, but even like some of the small knives, you know, whatever you have, if you... Strictly trying to be able to carry it as a tool that has the capability for self-defense when needed, try to go fixed blade. If it's not fixed blade, get something with a wave on it. Something that you can and practice repeatedly open with one hand under duress. So that's that's the thing. If it's a small fixed blade, that's great. Um, if it's a, uh, a folding knife, make sure it can work. If it's a push button knife, make sure you know where that button is and can reach it when your hand is muddy, bloody, or, or dirty, you know? or sweaty right. or whatever you just when your hand is compromised so that's what i'm saying a fixed blade knife um you know a lot of times when i show officers how to use knives because you know a lot of cops are like yeah you know i like the knife i want to be able to use the knife well there's a lot of differences when it comes to like law enforcement than there is a civilian as a civilian all i have to do is fear for my life in order to defend it a cop has to jump through way more hoops the yes. only time he can use the knife is when he has no other choice Right. And that time is going to be when someone's over top of them taking their life out of them and their weapon is out of battery and there's no backup. That's pretty much it. So when I show cops where to carry a knife, it's usually in an armpit to where if I'm reaching out, I know it's hard to see in my camera, but if I'm reaching towards you, my armpit is usually the most protected area where I can right. cover what is there. I can also grab it here. I can grab it here. You know what I'm saying? The, uh, I usually go for under the armpit carry, vertical carry, shink on both sides. 
something like that because it's a spot that I can guard with my body. It's also a spot a suspect doesn't see it so easily and it's harder for him to grab it. It's also one of my hands are on my back. I can grab it with both hands. You see what I'm saying? So um, that's why I try to educate folks. And then when it comes to close quarters disassembly, well, that's when you're going to need it most. When you're elbow to elbow, eyeball to eyeball and breast to breast, and you need to take that person and make them stop moving. <laughs> you know, That's why we show disassembly the way we show it. The things that we cut, where we cut aggressively as a bear hug with a knife in your neck and rip across, you know, the things that go across into that realm. Well, I can't reach the neck. Fine. Stab him in the spine and wrench it across. Dig the knife blade in there till it gets between the vertebrae and snap it. You know what I mean? Keep digging. Keep cycling. You know what I mean? A lot of things that we teach women. Is, uh, one second. Um, so one of the things, can you hear me now? Yeah, I got you. Okay, I just want to make sure because it disconnected my truck audio. One of the things that I teach women a lot. Your audio cut out. Like this, right? Yep. Cycling. So that's the same thing I'm doing with my hand and my knife, right? Hand and knife. Somebody's over top of me. One of the biggest deterrents. Okay, when I grew up, parents used to dig their fingers into your chest like this when you were in yes. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you would have did. Imagine that with a knife. <laughs> Hit, push off. Hit, push off. So I'm cycling. I'm stabbing in and pulling down, cutting, cutting, stabbing in, pulling down, pushing off, stabbing in, pulling down, pushing off. And I'm just cycling to try to get you off me, right? So that stabbing to get you off me can be done. Um, shit, Ed gave me a piece of rebar. Uh, he got <laughs> off a cartel member one time. Piece of three-eighths rebar. No, I think it was even quarter-inch rebar. And it, it was a piece of uh, rebar and it was just barely past my palm and it was made into a spike and then the top was bent over and flattened. And that oh, wow. just barely oh, wow. spiked sticking out. Boom, boom. You know what I mean? Get off and I'm hitting you and ripping down, ripping open the flesh, not cutting it, but tearing. You know what I mean? Those things will get somebody off you really quick. But that method of cycling, the great thing about a knife is it's like, it's an equalizer, Right. The woman can't fight off the big, strong man. I don't care. You know, she could have technique and all that stuff, but brute right. strength at some point matters. But with her with the blade, she can reach back. She could be being choked out. She could grab her blade, reach back behind her and cut the, I mean, come on, dude. Right. It don't get much. You're soft and fleshy. And when your blade is sharp, another thing is to watch out for when you're getting into the technical aspects of it. Now, this blade is a big blade, so it doesn't matter. But do you see that thing right there? Yeah. It's one thing to note. That's a sharpening choil, by the way, for folks that don't know what that is, a sharpening choil. That's where the machining stops the plunge and then they start the sharpening. It gives them a spot to end it so the whole blade is sharp. It will snag in things, right? Yep. Clothing, plastic bags, anything that you put in, if you stab that knife in far enough and try to pull and it has a sharpening choil, it will snag. There's a little spot in there that's not sharpened and it will snag on things. If that does, do this. Just rock your wrist as you're pulling because it'll let that pull. You have to be not afraid to once your blade touches flesh to keep it going. That's why you see so many people just stabbing because it's quick. It's almost the most impersonal way you can injure somebody with a knife. Boop, just stab. It's a lot more personal when I have to go, you know what I mean? Leave it right. in there, dig around some or splash and feel the blood splatter or because trust me, you're under pressure. You will pray. Close your mouth. 
because people will spray. <laughs> Someone's over. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, you will spray out. You are under pressure. And, uh, you know, you talk about blood pressure. Well, that's a real thing. So, um, yeah, but the sharpening choil is one thing to observe. That's why saber tooth and baby tooth will never have such a thing because it won't, it won't, it won't stop cutting. Then, you know, it won't get snagged on things. So, um, I learned that a long time ago when I first started being a carpenter, cutting uh, plastic sheeting, plastic sheeting, I had a super sharp knife and I'm cutting the plastic sheeting. Well, as soon as it gets too deep, it falls in that sharpening choil and it just snags and tears and you're just like, ah, yeah. So yeah, the sharpening choil. Now I've, you've bunched a bunch of shine down shows, Smith and shows. You brought your knives out, show Barry and I, Sanjay and a couple of crew guys. Yeah. Amazing. Some amazing stuff. And so I guess my question, uh, how do you, how do you make the point in your life where it's like, you know what? I want to start making knives that I trusted you. So like, what was the catalyst for you there to start doing your own bit stuff? And some of the stuff you're selling on your website now, I know it's sold out and stuff, but it's like they're works of art. They're deadly works of art. So how did you get to the point where it's like, you know what? I want to make the knives I want to use. Well, I appreciate that, man. Um, yeah, they're out of stock right now, but they should be coming back. I just sent a hundred baby teeth. The next hundred saber teeth and the next hundred baby teeth that hit my website will be ones that I've ground myself. We did that to test the process because I was having trouble with some manufacturing stuff for heat treating. And it's because my blades are quarter inch thick. Uh. Most blades you buy, if not almost all of them, except for a couple companies, Top Knives comes to mind, a couple others, uh, Strider, that are quarter inch thick. Well, it's really hard to heat treat a blade at quarter inch thick. So some of that stuff has to be worked out that they had to thin down some of the edges first. I didn't know they were doing that. So we got that sorted. Um, but the next batch is basically to test the process of heat treating. Now, Brad, my buddy at Peter's Heat Treating, one of the best heat treating places in the country, uh, they have a whole blade division. So I'm having him do my next batch of blades uh, themselves, plus cryo, uh, cryogenic freezing that adds a couple points of hardness in, in some spots that we want to, which is great. Um, you can literally, in their cryogenic freezing, you can freeze a can of beer in 30 seconds and a keg of beer in 30 minutes. Wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, 30 seconds for a can of beer. Uh, and not talking that old deal, old duels crap either, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so basically making knives was the thing that like, I've been a carpenter. I've been a master carpenter for a lot of years. I built a lot of stuff. So I'm very good with my hands. I, I build a lot of things. And I mean, it seemed to be a natural progressive order of things that I didn't even know about until I was on a show called knife or death on the history channel where I use a kukri and just go decimate things with knives and basically run through the whole show series with a kukri. And it was a great knife. Uh, my buddy Frankie Sosco made it with FS Blades, he's a buddy of mine on my spec. And uh, nothing beats a kukri for cutting power in its size. That's why I made the Primal Habitat Utility Cutting Tool, that tomahawk that I make. Yep. Nothing will outperform that tomahawk in its size. And the reason is only simply because of the edge geometry. Edge geometry is one of the most important aspects of a knife because it's the only thing that matters when it comes to cutting. Edge geometry and weight. How? What's the spread rate? What's the mass driving behind it? So those things are important. That's why that tomahawk's on a 200 slope. So it's the edge grind is laid back and then sharpened. So that way, when I cut things, it cuts through them easily. So, But that progression came because I got on the show called Knife or Death, met my buddy Travis Wirtz, who's a good friend of mine. I went to his place. He showed me the ropes of knife making. And then I took his personal grinder home with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a thing that, 
you know, that trailing point recurve that I showed you guys that I did on my page. Yep. It's like a, remember that big trailing point recurve? That knife was a knife that I ground to basically pass a test that Travis gave me of if I could make that knife. So basically put all the things that he taught me of knife making or knife grinding, I should say, into the place because I'm, I'm not forging the steel. I'm, I'm heat treating it all. I've learned all the metallurgy on that work. It's constant experiment, constant evaluation, constant things that are going on. And, uh, um, the, uh, the, the evolution of that now forging is something I'm going to get into and things like that. People are like, Oh, why don't you do a hidden tang knife? You know, like with the, with the guard and the bolsters. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll do a folding knife. I'll do things like that too. But right now I like to make formidable tools. That's why mm -hmm. I like knives with handle scales. That's why I like knives that are one piece full tang because they are tools for use. And eventually I'll start making more artsy knives once the production stuff is going. I'm trying to finish a bunch of customs that I got on deck right now. I think there's like 20 uh, customs that I'm working on. That as soon as I, I had to get those production knives out because the heat treatment testing and all that stuff so that they can finally push go. I know Warrior Poet and I, Society and I got a bunch of things coming out. They've got a bunch of knives that they want and, you know, things like that. So that just kind of came as like uh well it's necessary if i want to be able to design the things that work how i want them to work in my mind i have to be able to make them myself and that's where the saber tooth came to be was because i finally was able to make the knife that i wanted to be able to make and i was trying to show this off here for your viewers yeah, to be able awesome. to see but that is um that's the saber tooth and that you see edge geometry is so important <laughs> I'm filming this in my truck and two girls just walk in front of it as I'm like, look at this knife. And they're like, probably yeah, like, oh. yeah. but um, so the handle is important. It does not got a guard. Why doesn't it have a guard? Well, that's a great question, but all things can be answered. But that's um, one of the things that helped shape the saber tooth, the way that I wanted it, the, the tapering of the handle, the, the way that it goes to so where it works in my hands, the way that it's supposed to. And that is, uh, I had to be able to make them, you know, if you, that phrase, uh, if you can't find them, grind them. Right. It's not about a manual transmission. It's about me, making knife them, making. Yeah. If you can't find them, my grind them. So. <laughs> well, uh, before I let you go, I know you mentioned you got some stuff with the Warrior Poet Society. Any other uh, classes you got coming up? Any other instruction uh, seminars you're going to? I know you um, do that a lot. So. Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of people kind of hounding me to do classes and stuff and and i've just been like in a spot right now where i'm at yeah. home i'm working i'm trying to see my kids and stuff and get that stuff going but yeah i do think that our classes are going to start forming for springtime uh i like kind of like to do like a spring class i do personalized stuff but it's it's kind of difficult because you know so many people want to learn knife throwing and then other people want to learn um, disassembly stuff and it's like the demographic of folks that I teach has to kind of be corralled in like I'm not going to teach kids the same thing that I teach SF guys or police officers or you know the logical applications of different things so I kind of try to put those classes in groups you know what I mean and right. certain types of classes so um, we're trying to work some of that stuff out I needed some product to be kind of hitting the website but yeah I mean I'm going to be doing more classes and stuff coming up uh I'm if people got my email address is pronifethrower.com. You can find me there. Uh, shoot me a message, man. Let me know what you're interested in and things will start forming. And uh, as soon as I start getting things going again on classes this spring, we'll probably be forming some of that stuff up. So uh, oh, yeah, I, uh, I uh, love it. And always, it's a pleasure to have you on here, Jason. And uh, I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon again. 
Uh, yeah, we will. I'm yeah. uh, I'm out in California right now for the week, and then uh, I'll be headed back to Nebraska. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be cold. Cold is uh, well, we don't want to make any Richard Pryor jokes, but it'll be cold. <laughs> no, uh, and again, thanks for being on here. And uh, everyone, please go check out Jason's websites and social media, and uh, we'll have him on again here so soon. Uh, yeah, man. Again, thank you, Jason, for everything. Hey, looking good, buddy. Good to see you again, and uh, look forward to the next. Uh, concierto love it thank you all for checking out this week's episode once again i'm john if you like what you heard and saw today subscribe to our youtube channel find us on instagram facebook and twitter and check out our brand new merch store with hats coffee mugs t-shirts other cool stuff coming down the pipeline again thank you all for support be safe and see you next week Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.